I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing, podcats? It's Adam Buxton here. I'm joining you, guess from where? Yep, a farm track, that's correct. Can you hear my crunchy boots? On the farm track. I'm here with my best dog friend, Rosie, a.k.a. Rosebag, a.k.a. Dog Legs. She's doing well. How you doing, though, podcats? I hope you're well. I'm recording this intro quite soon after I recorded the one for the last episode, which featured a conversation with Jesse Armstrong. As you're aware, this one features a conversation with Jesse's writing partner, Sam Bain. Sam facts, Sam was born in 1971. His father, Bill Bain, was a successful TV director and his mother, Rosemary Frankow, was an actor who co-starred in the sitcom Terry and June. That was a fact that was revealed to me by Jesse Armstrong when I was talking to him that I was not previously aware of. And if you've read my memoir, Ramble Book, you'll know that June from Terry and June holds a a very special sexy place in my heart, which um, I didn't mention when I was talking to Jesse. And I won't go into it now because I don't think it's appropriate. But it's in Ramble Book in a chapter called It Started With a Kiss, I think. Anyway, back to Sam. It was while studying at Manchester University in the early 1990s that Sam met Jesse Armstrong, with whom he would go on to write on TV shows like Fresh Meat, Babylon, The Old Guys, and, of course, Peep Show, starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb, with whom Sam and Jesse worked on several other projects, including sketch shows and the film Magicians, in 2010, Sam and Jesse worked with Chris Morris on his comedy film Four Lions about homegrown terrorist jihadis from Sheffield. For the last few years, Sam has been living out in Los Angeles, where he's written a couple of films, Corporate Animals, starring Demi Moore and Ed Helms, and The Stand-In, starring Drew Barrymore. Outside of film and TV, Sam has also written a novel, Yours Truly, Pierre Stone, which was adapted for Radio 4 in 2017. Sam is also one of the founders and creative directors of the TV production company Various Artists Limited, along with Jesse Armstrong and producers and ex-Channel 4 commissioners Phil Clark and Roberto Troni. Various Artists Limited projects have so far included Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, Julia Davis's Sally Forever, and the show's Dead Pixels, and the current insomnia rom-com Still Up. My conversation with Sam was recorded face-to-face in London back in November 2017. Yes, 2017. So why did it take so long to come out? Well, if you're a regular listener, you will know that this is the kind of thing that does sometimes happen with the podcast. And this is one of those times when I got to record a conversation with someone I'm friendly with. I got to know Sam... And Jesse, when was it? It was something like 2007, and I was in a pilot written by Sam and Jesse called Ladies and Gentlemen about the lives and loves of a group of 30 something friends who share a London house in, in 1865. Yeah, we did the pilot. I, don't, I can't remember if it was broadcast or not. It was pretty good. Starred Darren Boyd. Reese Shearsmith, Lucy Punch, Rosie Cavaliero. Really amazingly talented performers, uh, plus Adam Buxton. It was disappointing when it didn't get commissioned, but it was great fun to do and hang out with those actors and get to know Sam and Jesse a little bit. Anyway, all those years later, I had the opportunity to record with Sam, but because I wasn't tied to a specific date to put it out as I am sometimes with other guests. It was one of those conversations that ended up sitting in the vault for a while. 
and then suddenly years have gone by and I felt as though I'd missed the moment. But then because I was talking to Jesse earlier this year, I went back and listened to that conversation with Sam from 2017. I really enjoyed it. There was lots in there and I thought that I should just finally put it out. I emailed Sam out in Los Angeles to check he was okay with that. He said, no way, fuck you. And if you put it out, you'll hear from my lawyers. He didn't. He was nice about it. The conversation with Sam was recorded the morning after I had seen his play, The Retreat, directed by Kathy Burke and starring Adam Deacon. And as well as talking a bit about the theatre, we spoke about Buddhist retreats, his writing partnership with Jesse, their collaboration with Chris Morris on Four Lions, and how they approached the difficult task of finding comedy in a subject like terrorism, something that had been on everyone's minds more than usual when we spoke, as it was only a few months after the Manchester Arena bombing in May of 2017. In the conversation, Sam mentions the way that the family of one of the victims of the bombings responded after the attack, and there's a link in the description to a Guardian article from last year, 2022, in which Martin Hett's family recalled the attack five years on. Anyway, as far as my conversation with Sam goes, things got lighter. Towards the end, you will hear, among other subjects, Sam's views on Bob Dylan going electric. It's all the latest hot-button topics on this podcast, and I'd forgotten until I listened back that my setup to that question was the longest one I've ever delivered on this podcast, and perhaps the longest setup to any question ever asked in history. Even though, if I say so myself, I think I did kind of a good job in the setup. Um, and if you listen to it, well, you'll never need to watch another Bob Dylan documentary again, I think. All right, I'll be back to say goodbye at the end, but right now, with Sam Bain, here we go. Ramble chat, that's a Bob Ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a Ramble chat. Put on your conversation coat and find your talking hat. Yes, yes, yes. Sam, we are speaking the day after the uh, press night. Was it the press night of your yeah, play? Yeah, it was. The Retreat. Um, yes. Th- and that's the first play you've written, right? It certainly is. How mm. long did it take you to write that? Um, it took me quite a while, you know, because it's quite a sort of challenging subject and the format I chose is quite difficult. So I kind of raised the bar of um, competence quite high for myself in my uh-huh. first play. Because um, the reason it's difficult format because it's all set in one room in you no know, cuts, real time, hour and a half, and to create a sort of compelling story out of that was quite difficult. I found it's quite a tough sort of framework to have, but I sort of wanted to do that for some reason. Here's the the blurb on the website: Luke left his high flying city life to discover serenity in the Highlands, but he can't escape his past. Is Tony everything wrong with Luke's old life? Or is he the only one that can really see into his soul? And Tony is Luke's brother. Yeah. And the name of the actor who plays Tony is Adam Deacon. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony is the most sort of obviously funny character. Mm. And most of his lines are pretty funny. The audience was really laughing. He's great. Where'd you find Adam Deacon? Because it's directed by Kathy Burke, right? Correct. So did she find the cast or...? Well, we did it together. I mean, she suggested Adam. And immediately that I, she said his name, I thought, yes. Because I'd worked with him on a show I did with Danny Boyle called Babylon. Right. So he had quite a big part in that. Um, I hadn't worked with him before, but I'd heard of him because he won a BAFTA, like a rising star BAFTA a few years ago after his film Anotherhood came out. Oh, yeah. 
which was a film that he wrote and directed. Ah. So he's quite a talent, Adam. Yeah. And he's a rapper, he's got a big following, and he's a bit of a star. And yes, he is an extremely funny and brilliant actor, and so it's been really nice working with him and Kathy. Him and Kathy have a lovely bond. So yeah, he's been great. I have you to thank for introducing me to Kathy. I'd met her once or twice in the past, but um, you and I went out for lunch with her a couple of years ago, mm. and that was a really fun afternoon. And she was such good company. I just thought I'd love to get her on the podcast, and so that's how she uh, came to be on it. Yeah, I don't know what's better, doing a play with Kathy or just having an excuse to hang out with her. Really, yeah, she's just a ledge. She's so great. And then were you? Like, how does it work? You write the thing and then mm. do you more or less hand it over to Kathy and she does what she thinks and you check in every now and again? Or No, I was in there in rehearsals every day. Initially, she said, right, you stay for the first week, you fuck off for the second week, yeah. come back for the third. <laughs> I can imagine her saying that. <laughs> but I think as she realised that I wasn't going to be precious at all about the script, she let me stay the whole time. Okay. Because um, it was really helpful, actually, just being there, tweaking, talking getting all the details right, you know, it's nice to be involved in that. And then did you, why did you go for that uh, sort of real-time hour-and-a-half um, three-way thing? Did you sort of think, well, it's better to um, keep things manageable as this is your first play rather than being... Well, I think I just like plays that are quite intense and intimate. And I just felt like if you're going to do a play, having done a lot of TV and stuff you might as well do something which is, which you could only do in a theatre. And, you know, one scene with no cuts um, where you can go a bit deeper, maybe into philosophy and religion and characters, to me felt like a good reason to write a play because it felt something that you couldn't do in any, any other format. And I like that feeling when a play is sweeping you along of, like, you're in the room with the people... They're real, they're right in front of you. That's the feeling I was trying to create with the play. And do you like going to the theatre? I mean, do you go fairly regularly? Um, I do. I have mixed feelings, you know. There's a scene in Peep Show where Mark and Jeremy go to the theatre and I don't have a very good time and Jeremy walks out, which is not, not completely um, irrelevant to some of my experiences at the theatre because it can be quite... Frustrating. I think for me, when theatre's brilliant, it's the best thing ever. When it's bad, it's like the worst thing ever. And yeah. you just want to get out and it's terrible. So it can be very up and down. Whereas most films or TV are quite good and sort of, yeah, I can watch this. It's no trouble. But a bad play is like like being being physically attacked. Somehow. Is it something to do with the fact that you're actually sharing that, that space with these other human beings? They're right in front of yeah. you. Yeah. And the the silliness of it is right up in your face and it's yeah. right on the edge, like the silliness of pretending to be someone else um, yeah. is so close to the genius of of that same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, I, I totally. think I've talked about this before, like when, when it goes right, as you say, it's, it's wonderful and part of that is that it just feels like such a special thing that human beings can do this for each other, that they can interrupt mm. and disrupt the way we behave and mm. what reality is and what truth is and what it means and everything. And we can just pretend to be different. But then when it goes wrong, you just want to say, don't do that. It's too real. <laughs> what are you it's doing? Too, yeah, when it's wrong, like if it's bad TV, you can literally, there's almost nothing more fun than watching a bad TV show and yeah. laughing and pointing with your wife or your friends, going, oh, this is so brilliantly terrible. Look at this. But there's no fun for me in a bad play because the people are right there yeah. and their humanity is on display. I'll tell you what I've been surprised by pleasantly about doing the plays. I've seen it a few times now. I really like theatre audiences uh-huh. because my only other experience of audiences with TV like um, sitcoms and sketch shows and they're kind of free tickets and the people are sort of... Quite, in and Yeah. Whereas theatre audiences are have made an informed choice. They've chosen to see this production and they're going to give it their full attention. And I'm really grateful for that because that's really all you can ask for in an audience. Just give me your full attention. Hopefully we can re- reward it with something entertaining and interesting. And I really appreciate that. I enjoy seeing that. Mm. And then do you read the reviews the day after your... Yeah, I read show? the reviews this morning, yeah. And do you feel... Is that something you do with all your work? Yeah, I'm just... 
too kind of interested, not to really. Yeah, okay. And um, I think a lot of actors don't read reviews when they're in the show. I think that's very wise because you've got to go and do it every night and you've read that you're a, yeah. you're a human piece of waste. I think it must be virtually impossible. Yeah. So I think that's very sensible. But for the writer who's essentially my work is over, I think that it would be kind of... Yeah, I couldn't not read them really. Okay. And were you happy in general? I mean... The reviews? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's early days. Not all, the, not all the press have reviewed it yet. But there are some... You know, people aren't always that nice in reviews, you know, and I've there heard. are some phrases that are stuck in my head that probably will never leave, as I read earlier, so I'm processing that. Oh, man. Was the exposition really cack-handed? Okay, fine, cack-handed, let's just have that then. Yeah. yeah. Um, shallow? Okay, fine, maybe the play is shallow. Okay, fine. Um, Give us some good ones to counterbalance those. Yeah, no, there are some nice ones, you know, four stars and sort of some lovely ones everyone everyone really said it was funny which to yeah, be honest is, really is, I mean, is um a great compliment because how many shows honestly are that funny yeah. you know plays not that many that i've seen so but yeah i mean the theater is a slightly different world and i i would have put a large bet in ladbrooks that most if not all the reviews would mention the word sitcom or mm-hmm. sitcommy in not a particularly praiseworthy kind of way and that is kind of what happened because I think yeah. that I think there is a cultural divide between TV and theatre and with co- comedy especially so it wasn't a huge shock in fact it was predictable that people would say it was a bit sitcom mm-hmm. which you know I regard as a compliment in a way but it wasn't intended as such I think yeah. by the reviewers but I feel pretty immunised against any bad reviews or mixed reviews, having seen the show with an audience sort of five times now and hearing them, them laugh and feeling good in the room, it's really hard to kind of knock that mm-hmm. as an experience because, you know, it feels like it works for me, which is a big deal because I had no idea if it would. Mm. So I kind of feel pretty good about it. And the premise of the thing is that this guy, this high-flying city guy, goes yeah. off to a retreat because he's having a... A sort of spiritual crisis. Yeah, a sort of breakdown or crisis. So he's he's sort of dropping his London lifestyle to go off and live in a hut with no electricity and internet and phones and just kind of do this intense solitary retreat for three months. And that is something that I would imagine a lot of people have thought about. I have. Have yeah. you? Yeah. Well, I've, I have done retreats. You've done a retreat. I've done a few. Like what kind of retreats? This guy's on a Buddhist retreat. Yeah, that was my retreat. So I did a yeah. few Buddhist retreats. I did a silent one. It was like a 10-day silent one, which was a group retreat. When was this? How old were you? Uh, so this would be about 2001, so 16 years ago. Yeah, okay. So 30, 31 yeah. years old. And a few years later, I did a solo retreat up a mountain in Spain three weeks doing a hundred thousand mantras whoa eight hours a day of chanting basically meditating i wasn't completely on my own there were people nearby living in a large sort of farmhouse but i did the retreat on my own and what was it that um led up to you going out the first time and doing your first retreat well um i suppose you know i was uh it was when me and jesse started writing together and things were starting to really um, take off. And I, my workload was increasing. And I was just aware that my concentration, my work ethic, as it were, just wasn't really good, very good. I couldn't find it that easy to focus. Mm-hmm. So I thought I should take my brain in for a tune-up. So I went to a local Buddhist centre where I was living in Bethnal Green, did a meditation class, and I just really took to it. I just thought, well, this is a really interesting tool to use to kind of like improve my mind and if I can improve my mind then I can improve everything because everything I do involves my mind so I thought well this is kind of fascinating and so I sort of got into it really from there and did you feel the benefit of it immediately yeah pretty much I mean it's like exercise or anything you know it's practice you don't do one meditation class and sort of nail it you do it I end up doing a daily practice which I would do every morning I did that for several years that's when you sort of start to go a bit deeper. But going on retreat is a pretty Im- important experience if, you, if you're into meditating because it's an opportunity to go a lot deeper. 
Yeah. So is that something you sort of do regularly now? Not so much anymore. I did it really intensively. Then I kind of let it kind of fall away a little bit because I felt like I'd done what I needed to do. But I still meditate. I can meditate if I want to, but I don't have a sort of, you know, regular practice like I used to. Yeah. We are sitting in the front room of a friend of mine, Mark, who kindly lets me use his house to record the odd podcast when I'm in London. And uh, he has a little office across the way where he runs his various business ventures. He's a restaurateur and a hotelier and a very busy guy. And this morning he was in the kitchen while I was pottering around making myself some tea. And he was on a work call and he was bollocking someone. And some business associate who had come up short with something and he was chewing him out and I felt really awkward I didn't know what to do I I thought "Eh, maybe I shouldn't be here maybe I'm cramping his bollock style but I don't think I was because he was just going for it but I was really impressed he was respectful but very firm and the thing that impressed me most was that his voice didn't waver Mm. have you ever bollocked someone oh man that's not my idea of fun bollocking someone no, I don't think I have. I mean, yeah, anger is not my kind of, like, favourite emotion mm. and dealing with it is not my my best <laughs> ability, but I have got better at it over the years. My thing is that I always assume that whatever gripe I have is unreasonable. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's not <laughs> worth expressing <laughs> because as soon as I express my dissatisfaction with any given situation, it will be revealed to me almost immediately that I'm in the wrong. <laughs> so I don't want to speak up. But it's really stupid because then it just festers. I think and if you lose your shit, it's a problem because then you've lost the moral high ground immediately. You've lost everything. Your shit, <laughs> the high ground. So even if you have a really good point, you start screaming like a baby then it's very hard to bring that back so i try to avoid that one <laughs> have you ever just lost it in a meeting or anything and and had that situation and then and then realized like oh dear i've just had a meltdown no not in a meeting i mean me and jesse we have a nice working style where we don't really get too kind of fed up with each other which is why it's lasted 20 years mm-hmm. but um i've certainly you know on set when you're shooting and things are very tiring and everyone's knackered and it's and you've been doing it for six weeks then things can get a little bit start to fray at the edges and i have have been occasionally a bit snappy that's about as far as it gets with me yeah snappy like the crocodile yeah (laughs) but in writing in general i find it's an amazing way to deal with one's own insanity because you can create insane situations and have fun with them and certainly comedy is kind of when i discovered comedy writing to me it's about like discovering a magic spell or alchemy that i could literally take my most painful humiliating experiences and turn them into gold that people would laugh about and write about on the internet and enjoy like peep show that to me is a magic trick which i can't really imagine living without because there's something quite amazing about that and how would that work in practical terms when you and Jesse were sat in a room? Would you tell each other stories? Oh, yeah. So we just, like, carve ourselves up and offer up the most sort of awful things that have happened to us. A lot of the most embarrassing things in the show happened to me more, more than Jesse. I don't know what that says about us. <laughs> That's a great way to start writing a kind of sitcom. And we had Ian Morris, who's our script editor for many years, who was very forthright about giving up his terrible experiences. So it's a great way to write comedy because that's what people relate to. You know, we have all have embarrassing, humiliating, horrible moments and seeing other people's is somehow very healing and funny if it's done well. Yeah. Were there ever stories that you would tell that Jesse sort of said, mm, no, mate, no one's going to relate to that. That's just weird. <laughs> I'm not sure. I can't think of any in particular, but quite a few made into the show pretty much on uncensored like there's an episode of peep show where mark is burgled and he sits on the burglar and it's quite awkward i I did that i was working in a video shop we got burgled by a guy who came in the back door and i sat on him and he was face up on the floor like in the show right so we had this weird conversation i was sitting on him like because all my experience of fighting with like as a kid so all i could think of to do was sit on his put my knees on put my knees on his shoulders yeah that's right did you ever have that thing um people do the typewriter 
So they yeah. would, some guy would pin you down, as you say, face up, and then he'd sit with his knees on my shoulders and pretend he was typing on my chest. <laughs> and then, what's the thing? The carriage return or whatever it's called. <laughs> he'd smack my face. <laughs> it's a high-level martial arts move. Old typewriter. School. I guess that's extinct now because there's no typewriters like that yeah. anymore. <laughs> Your Victorian childhood has been outdated. Yeah. So now they do them. They would just do a mouse, I guess, just drag or, their fist all or over just your face, poke you in the face with their finger, trying to activate your apps. Yeah. Escape. 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 Yes. Yes, please. What do you think Jesse would say if I asked him about your best and worst qualities as a writing partner, assuming he was going to be honest with me? I think he'd have to praise my punctuation and spelling and grammar, which I think he'd agree is slightly superior to his. Okay. I don't think he'd have a problem with that. I think that um, we both, you know, work in a very similar way, which is why the partnership works so well. We both have a similar sort of work ethic, similar sense of humour and sensibility. I think probably... The best quality for me as a writing partner, I would like to think, is a sort of lack of ego, where if Jesse says that he doesn't like something I've written, I don't really mind. And I think that is the most valuable thing you can bring to any writing partnership or any creative partnership, because if you start defending an idea because it's yours, you're really in big trouble. I think the thing which we always have done, and which I would always encourage anyone to do who's collaborating, is always put the project as the only thing of importance. And whatever anyone says that's going to serve the project and make it better is welcome. And it doesn't matter who says it, because all that matters is the project, is the script or whatever. And so that's, I think, probably the thing I feel you're happiest about as I'm able to sort of let go of my own ideas quite quickly. In terms of bad qualities as a writing partner, again, refer you back to the punctuation and spelling. It's probably quite annoying for him to have all his... Um, grammar questioned but no I, th- <laughs> I, no I think that's a good question I feel like I'm in a job interview the um, the answer is there was quite a job interview no it's question. fine I think occasionally I can be compared to Jesse anyway who is my writing hero in many ways I can be sort of a little bit more oh that'll do you know a little bit more laid back mm-hmm. about things and sometimes it really helps to have him going no no we can actually make this better oh all right then I think occasionally I might sort of stop a bit early in the life of the script, whereas he is has an amazing capacity to sort of keep grinding it out until we get to the best possible joke or script, which is what it's all about, really. How did it work when you were writing with Chris Morris then on Four Lions? Oh, yeah. Well, that was a really interesting adventure because, I mean, you know Chris, right? So Chris is, as we know, one-off, a unique human and his approach to writing was a surprise to me because he really doesn't have, or he didn't have at the start of that process, a particularly clear idea about where it was going to go or how it was going to be. What I found really fascinating and kind of inspiring about Chris was that he really just likes to ask himself interesting questions. And he doesn't really know what's going to happen or what the answer is going to be. So his question really to us, which was obviously like every script starts out as a long conversation over several months... His question was really, could you write a comedy about suicide bombers? I don't know the answer. Let's talk about it and let's see if we can. I like that because he's not married to an outcome. He's not like a man who said, right, I have to write a comedy about suicide bombers by January. And so we need to write an outline now. And, you know, he's like, if the answer had been no, we can't, he wouldn't have written it. And he definitely left that as an option. Uh huh. So he had just asked himself this question and then he asked it to you without any commitment to a company or... Exactly. Right. And I really found that quite liberating because it feels like quite pure artistic questioning, you know. It's not like we've committed to make a product for the third quarter of next year and we have to produce it by then. It's like, I don't know if we can do this. It might not work. Completely possible. Let's see if it does. And if we did write a comedy about Sister Bombers, what would it look like? How would it work? Where would the jokes be? How would it function? So that was the process of that, was talking about the sort of pure comedy application to that particular story or kind of... And your initial reaction was, 
pretty confident that it could be done or were you thinking were no you- I wasn't I was just happy to be in a room with him and talking to him because he's a comedy hero and um, no I didn't know if it was going to work neither did he which was so refreshing so it was a voyage of discovery for the three of us he'd already had some ideas for characters it wasn't a complete blank piece of paper he handed us he kind of already knew from early on what the ending ought to look like that it would end in how it ends the movie if you haven't seen it spoiler alert but you know death and sort of a siege destruction that goes on a, on a high street um, during the London Marathon yeah or just after it yeah the marathon was a sort of I mean we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what their operation should be or what they would be attacking or what they their target would be the marathon was one idea out of many that we talked about I think the idea of the colourful costumes was why that one won. Uh-huh. Because it felt like it would be funny. Since we came, I think that was a breakthrough moment. I sort of remember where, where we were when we came up with it. I can't remember who came up with it. It doesn't really matter. That's the joy of collaboration. But when we came up with the colourful costumes, the honey monster and all that stuff... Yeah. I bet which, it was you, by the way. <laughs> when we came up Sounds with... <laughs> when we came up with that idea... We all laughed and it felt like, well, that will work. That will work because it's physical, it's visual, it's silly, but at the same time, it's also quite credible that that would be a target. Yes, so it exactly. So kind of ticked quite a few boxes at once. Yeah. And that, to me, was the first time I felt like, yeah, this film actually probably will work. And once we had the ending, then we could go back and sort of build up everything towards that because obviously the ending is with most films is incredibly important to end it well on a climax. So that felt like a breakthrough. Because mm. we were sort of investing in quite... It's quite a traditional comedy, really. People running around in stupid outfits. But because it's played so brilliantly straight by the great cast and all the rest of it, it felt like, yeah, that's a set piece which will work. And we sort of felt a lot more confident, I certainly did, after that meeting, with that sort of scene in mind, thinking we've got something to work towards... Did you have to consult with anyone before you used the London Marathon as a plot point? Good question. I mean, Chris sort of took a huge amount of control. We, it was quite nice in a way, cause, because Chris was the captain of the ship, we could just do a very simple, pure thing of just writing. Mm-hmm. We weren't involved in any of the production. I didn't even go to shooting because he was directing it and I didn't need to be there to help him. He didn't need any help. So that was quite nice. And in a way, when he went away and did all his research we could just say, that's great, but let's look at the story. Or, you know, we had just a very clear role, which was to help write the script and get the story right. We didn't really have any other role beyond that. Mm -hmm. Because God forbid anything should happen at the marathon, then it would feel so weird, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, there is always that massive risk. Um, But, you know, uh, we sent the script to Bin Laden early on. Chris managed to get it to Bin Laden, and he really liked it. He had some great notes. (laughs) <laughs> and he actually, you know, so that was helpful. Felt yeah. pretty much a pretty safe ground after Bin Laden read it. How would it work then practically? You and Jesse would write scenes and then would you send them to Chris and he would sort of write little bits as well? Or were you really writing the bulk of the script? So you, we you wrote, two? yeah, we wrote, we sat the three of us in his office with the laptops and wrote the outline sort of together, I think. It's a long time ago now, but what I do remember very clearly is that me and Jesse did write the first draft between the two of us and then showed it to Chris. And I think he was really happy with that because, as you know, writing the first draft is the hardest bit, right? It's kind of like breaking the ground with the spade and then you can sort of have a bit easier time on the second and third. So that was our major contribution. After we delivered that first draft and he was broadly happy with it, he sort of took he took back the script took ownership of the script and did a lot of drafts um, which showing us giving out giving our notes to him but and coming back in and writing stuff and being in rehearsal and all that but that was our major contribution mm. apart from obviously coming up with the story together and helping with the characters and all the rest of it we wrote that draft which I think took a lot of pressure off him rubber dingy rapids bro where's that from that's Chris right <laughs> I, I think he just had a theme park idea. I don't know. He'd maybe met some guys from up north who into theme parks. It's just, yeah, I can't take any credit for that. Similarly, I think Mini Baby Bells was 
Kavan Novak. I can't remember actually, but I can't take credit for some of those brilliant lines. Yeah. Well, you had so many great performers in there. I mean, it was. Um, you must have got a lot of good stuff out of them, surely. Yeah. It was really interesting because I hadn't met Riz before. I didn't know Riz Ahmed at all before the film. And sitting in rehearsals with him, first day we met him, he had some really strong notes on the character, like, oh, he wouldn't do this, he wouldn't do that. And it was a little bit of, well, hold on a minute. Yeah, we thought about it pretty hard. Oh, we've been doing this script for a couple of years, (laughs) mate, and who the hell are you? Yeah. You know, but he was right. And, you know, he's a very smart, intelligent guy and obviously super talented, as everyone now knows, because he's done so many great things since. And... Also, when an actor is playing a role that demanding, you basically have to listen because it's up to them whether they're going to say it or not. I mean, you sort of, if you start trying to force people to say things they don't want to say, you've kind of lost the battle. And generally, if an actor is that good, they will have really, you know, their opinions are usually coming from somewhere. So you, you need to listen. And it was definitely beneficial that we did listen because he, you know, he was one of the big reasons why that film works I think mm-hmm. oh definitely I mean that scene where he's more or less saying goodbye to his wife in the hospital with the cops standing a couple of feet away yeah it's brilliant I think it's heartbreaking but there's so many things going on you know he, he, he's he's so from my perspective he's so deluded mm. but you can't help but sympathise with him because he feels he's doing the right thing and he's yeah I'm so pleased Chris allowed the emotion of that film and the sadness of it out because I think one of the key things I can't speak for Jesse and Chris really but I felt like writing those characters the key to writing them was really understanding how huge and important that cause felt and sort of forgetting just completely forgetting that it's insane nonsense just imagine if you think you're a Jedi warrior mm-hmm. or, you know, you're Luke Skywalker, which is how they feel about themselves in the film. They're, they're, they're there being the ultimate hero and what that would mean and almost inverting the whole idea of being a hero. Obviously, most people would think of suicide bombers as the ultimate villains, but from their point of view, it's completely the opposite. It's, mm. ups, it's the upside-down world. So yeah. that's the way into those characters for me is... And hopefully there's some poignancy there of thinking, I'm going to do all the things a hero does, sacrifice his ease and comfort and his family life and stride out with my shining sword to save the world. But obviously the horror and irony of it is they're doing the complete opposite. Yeah, that's the most chilling thing, isn't it? Is that, you know, the standard villain, certainly when we were growing up, the villain would always be just like, they'd know they were evil and they were just bent on being evil. (laughs) But of course, real villains in real life, they think they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And that's the scary thing about them because there's no reasoning with them because they're so convinced of their own righteousness. We, I really wanted to um, get into that. I mean, there was, you know, you, there's this funny expression of a humanizing that the film humanizes. Uh huh. Or someone, I think, maybe said that in a review. But to me, it's a kind of a bonkers expression that to humanize because. It implies that people aren't human to start with. Yeah. And well, I suppose the, the, the purpose of the expression is to uh, make the point that, that for a lot of people, they aren't human. They're just caricatures of evil. Exactly, which and, is just unhelpful. It doesn't yeah. help anyone. The tabloid, you know, heroes and villains, it just, what does it achieve? Nothing. It just mm. increases more hatred and ignorance. Yeah, exactly. And the policy generally seems to be, um, especially after 9-11, it was like the war on terror, the same as the war on drugs, just this thing that has to be dealt with and got rid of. And let's not worry about where it came from. Yeah. Because it's a thing and it just needs to be swept away. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm not really Buddhist anymore, but one of the Buddhist philosophies that has definitely stayed with me is that thing of realising that if someone is doing something destructive they are probably suffering mm-hmm. and in pain. And I think that is really helpful. Martin Hett, who was that kid who died in Manchester, his mother has said, I believe, that she felt like the boy who blew himself up and her son were both killed by ISIS. Mm-hmm. Both the victims of ISIS, the murderer and the victim. Yeah. I find that quite powerful. Yeah, of course. I mean, 
Because as you say, I just don't think, I suppose, you you know, everyone has the right to believe that there is such a thing as pure evil and that some human beings are, you know, can't be reasoned with. And, but it just doesn't add up. It just seems so clear that we're, we're, we've all got the capacity to do pretty dreadful things. I think the, the reason people probably like the idea of pure evil or blatant... It's nice and simple. Yeah, and it means you don't have to get involved yeah. in thinking about anything. You don't have to think about why would someone turn to ISIS? Why would someone travel to Syria? Why would someone put on a suicide belt? Because it's complicated, confusing, and stressful. It's much easier to go, they're evil. Mm. But it's not helpful. some random questions I wanted to ask you can you do an Eddie Redmayne voice Eddie Redmayne no have you seen our fantastic beasts and where to find them but he sort of talks like this I think and also he's in a film called uh, <laughs> Jupiter Rising yeah I haven't seen that I'm not, I'm not really a voice man to right. be honest Adam I, I did a couple of weeks um, working with Sasha Baron Cohen on Bruno oh right and everyone around the writing team, not none of them actors apart from him, at some point were called upon to do the voice. Yeah. But I could never do it. <laughs> I mean, they didn't give me too much of a hard time, but I'm just not, I'm not a man who can do voices. Yeah. Any, I can't even do an accent. What would you do then when it was your turn to say some lines in a Bruno style? I would just say them like my normal voice and look quite like I'd failed. Yeah. And everyone else would look at me like I'd failed. And then we'd just <laughs> carry on. How's he to work with? Had you worked with him before, Sasha Baron Cohen? No, that was the first time we worked with him. And I've seen him and done bits and pieces, but that was the substantial two weeks in LA. Mm. It was kind of fascinating, actually, because he is... Actually, not a million miles away from Chris Morris in the sense that he is someone who is figuring stuff out all the time and is never like, I've got the answer, let's do it this way. It's always like, well, what if this? What if that? What if this? And I do respect that, that sense of restless questing to just come up with something funnier and better and funnier and better. Although it can be quite tough on the writing team to be sort of always having to go back and look at it again and... But I think, you know, we actually enjoyed it and he felt, I think he felt like we got some stuff done. But he does have, also a bit like Chris, an extraordinary, for an English person particularly, lack of shame mm-hmm. or self-consciousness or kind of... He can do things which I would find unimaginable. <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking about, you know, the stunts and putting one over on people which would make me want to just die. But yeah. he doesn't give a shit. He really, really doesn't. And I kind of admire that, although it's in essentially the kind of thing that you might be able to do if you were a serial killer as well. I was well. going to say, it's, sort of, it, it's, it's like a trait of psychopathy, isn't it, almost? Well, it can be used for good or evil, put it that way. He's, he uses it for comedy, which I think is on the side of good. Yeah, But yeah. If, if he was evil, he would be quite good at being evil, if he chose to be. But that's the thing that we as an audience get when we're watching those things is a glimpse into a mind that operates in a completely different way. Someone that is just trampling over all the rules that keep normal society going. And it's thrilling, you know, and Borat. Yeah. It's why that film has... He just really does do that. And that is the secret of, of his greatest work, I think. And I think Chris has that too. Chris doesn't really say no to himself some people say no to him but he's like well if I think it's going to work let's do it let's go and dress in a nappy and put a big red ball on my head and try and buy drugs like in Brass Eye yeah it's sad that Chris Morris doesn't perform more well I guess the last thing he did was IT Crowd right yeah that's right and he had a very funny death as I recall jumping out the window (laughs) yeah but yeah he is a brilliant performer I know why do you think he's backed away from it I don't know I mean 
It's interesting working with Kathy Burke, who's also backed away from performing quite a lot. I think probably, as an actor, you have so little control. Mm-hmm. You're essentially, especially if you're acting someone else's thing, you're sort of a puppet on a string about it, or you can be represented in any way, you can be edited, you can be photographed, you can be... And I think that element of passivity, if you're really smart, which Kathy and Chris both are, like, why would you put yourself through that when mm-hmm. you can do your own thing and write your own thing and direct your own thing? I imagine that's part of it. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Best and worst plane trip. <laughs> Just dropping that on you. Best plane trip was probably the trip to um, LA to work with Sasha because it was the first time I'd ever flown first class. Oh, yeah. It got me a first upper class ticket on Virgin, me and Jesse. And we enjoyed that. We just had a lot of laughter at the idea that we were turning left rather than right on the plane and that the idea that we were kind of in this now brave new world of the um, upper class, as it's called on Virgin Yeah, Atlantic. it's so uh, <laughs> it was quite Because it was free, made it ten times as sweet as if we paid for it or anything. Yeah, and did that ruin future um, transatlantic oh, crossings? Yeah, definitely. We flew economy to Sundance for Four Lions, which was a long flight trapped with my knees against the chair in front yeah so it does ruin you but it was fun yeah I'll, maybe I'll call that the worst plane trip just because I can't think of another one okay. flying to Sundance with my laptop which is too big for my economy table for yeah. 12 hours you've never been in fear for your life on a plane no thankfully have you, do you are you a bad flyer I was for a bit my mother was a stewardess on BOAC back in the day mm. that's how she met my dad so presumably she didn't mind flying, but I remember that when we used to travel, when my dad took us abroad sometimes, she got very nervous about flying. She didn't like it at all. And I remember one time flying through what I recall as a valley of cloud at night, and the whole thing was lit up dramatically as if it was from a film, a sci-fi film or something, mm. by branches of lightning Wow. coming out from the side of this valley and we're flying down through the middle of it. But it was fairly alarming and there was a lot of turbulence. And there was wind and uh, there was rain lashing the, the window from these clouds around us. It was very dramatic. And everyone was quite quiet because they were frightened. And all you could hear in the cabin was my mum sobbing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Because she thought we were fucked. That's not a good sound. <laughs> it's really not, is it? I didn't mind. Because I just thought, well, I was only eight or something. Right, you're not going to die. Gonna no one you. eight ever dies. No, we're not going to die. And I, I was even thinking through, like, I hope we do go down. Because then we're going to use the inflatable stairs. Of Be the like in a movie. Yeah. We're going to use the slide. <laughs> God, the dream. That's the dream, isn't it? Be on the slide. We're going to use the slide. First of all, it's going to be like a roller coaster heading down. And then we're going to use the slide. I can't wait. I was disappointed when everything got calm. Uh, here's a music question. Are you a Bob Dylan guy? Sure, Bob Dylan. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? I love the bit in that documentary where, uh, you know, the Manchester Free Trade Hall gig this is don't look back we're talking about don't look back and but there's lots of footage in the in the scorsese oh right right right. because obviously it's a pivotal moment but it's such a pivotal Mm. moment culturally as well it's got so much resonance so this is uh, if you're not a big dylan fan listeners 1966 dylan is playing in the uk he's just gone electric so the year before having made his name as a folky playing his acoustic guitar and singing a mixture of traditional songs in the style and tradition of Woody Guthrie. He's singing some songs that are protest songs about civil rights, etc. And he's become a hero for the folk movement. And then suddenly on Bringing It All Back Home and, uh, and then Highway 61 Revisited, he's, he's got an electric sound. He's embracing rock. And so his gigs in the UK in 66 reflect that. First half was an acoustic performance him just doing his folky thing with his guitar and his harmonica then the second half his band would come on the hawks and they would play the the newer stuff like a rolling stone etc full-on loud quite distorted sometimes you know but nothing that this folk audience was used to Mm. and the reaction was extreme from these fans to the extent that one night in manchester 
he'd just played Ballad of a Thin Man towards the end of the second half, the electric set, and someone famously shouted, Judas! <laughs> because they felt they'd been betrayed by their folk hero. And there's this amazing footage of Dylan saying, I don't believe you. <laughs> and then um, and then he turns around, you can see him stepping away from the microphone, looking at the band and, and saying, um, play it fucking loud. And they launch into like a Rolling Stone, you know. But this great footage of these young, fresh-faced Manchester gig-goers coming out and sort of going, I thought it was terrible, it's rubbish. And they're really articulate. I'm not going to do them justice, but it's so weird seeing these concert goers and they're so angry and they're like, he let us down, he betrayed us, it was rubbish. That wasn't music what he was playing in there. It was loud, it was distorted, it was terrible. It's not what I paid to see. And person after person, they're so indignant. So my question to you is, would you have been one of the people, because obviously there were some people who loved it. Mm. Would you have been one of the people, do you think, that would have embraced this new movement, the loud rock, distorted guitars? Or would you have been like, no, no, we should carry on doing the <laughs> nice things? I feel I would have been one of the moaning people. Right. Because, you know, I bought my ticket. I had a nice evening of folk lined up with my thermos and my shortbread biscuits and my blanket and my spliff. And, you know, just do what's on the ticket, man. It's not all about you. I'm paying your wages. You know, I'm not... It's like asking for panini and getting spaghetti. <laughs> but what if it's amazing electric spaghetti that you've never had before and you're just like wow he's shown me the way well you know then advertise a different show and i'll think about whether to come and see that but that's this is what i've paid for yeah that's it isn't it it's managing expectations should have said on the ticket <laughs> this show will be in two halves the first an acoustic set and I the second that... a loud amplified electric set with the hawks that's all i'm saying you could have avoided all those difficult emotions if you just given someone a leaflet to hand out as everyone came in yeah well that's i guess the way it would have been done that's one of the many lessons that would have been learned from touring the uk it's like eh, next time we go back to the uk we should make it really clear what we're going to be doing so nobody shouts judas the big takeaway is it's a you know it's a lesson about advertising and publicity yeah i wonder which camp i would have been in i think i probably would have been in the same complaining camp like no 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 it's not what we want we want the, the nice things when people go out, they want a night out. It's hard enough to arrange a night out the older you get. You want to go for a safe bet, don't you? Especially with Dylan, though. I mean, nowadays, you go and see Dylan, you're going to be lucky if you recognise any of the songs. Yeah, I did. I did go and sit me out. Oh, did you? Hall, yeah, a couple of years ago. How was it? It was... Challenging. Yeah. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't really that much fun. Yeah. I couldn't really hear any of the words. Do you, do you should have shouted Judas. <laughs> yeah, I should have done. That would have sorted him out. Or maybe something a little bit more left field, like Doubting Thomas, <laughs> another of the uh, disciples, <laughs> might have confused him a little bit. <laughs> Don't go for the obvious one. John, you're John, <laughs> the fisherman. What? No, play it fucking loud for that guy who said the confusing thing. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Eight. Continue. Mate, it's your sick listening to this rubbish now. Bob Dylan was a bastard in the second half.
Welcome back, Podcats. That was the lovely Sam Bain talking to me way back in 2017, November 2017. Ah, the good old days. There were no real problems back then, were there? I'm very grateful to Sam for his time and for being cool with me, having sat on the episode for so long and being so badly organized. Thank you, Sam. It's a beautiful, quiet, still day out here in the Norfolk countryside towards the end of September 2023. And I am heading back to pack my bags for a trip to Kent, where this week I'm going to do a few days' work with Joe Mount of the band Metronomy. Joe has been my sometime musical collaborator over the last year or two, helping me to get some music together for my album. Haven't made too much progress on the album in the last few months, but the plan is for me and Joe to really knuckle down and tidy up and finish off the bits and pieces I have so far so that we can get them out into the world where they will solve everybody's problems sometime next year. Thanks to those of you who got in touch to offer your services as guitar tutors, by the way. I really appreciate that. So far, I have not started any lessons, although I still intend to do so at some point. I have been practicing quite a bit more. Have I been improving? Hard to tell. Some days I do think I'm getting better, but then what happens is I will try to play a song in front of another person, and then that's the real test. (laughs) And that, that doesn't tend to go quite so well. But I do have good fun on my own. I'm getting better at playing Lazy Flies by Beck. That's from one of my favourite ever albums, Mutations. You got that album? God, it's good. I think of it as a kind of indie, pop, rock, hunky-dory. And it was produced by Nigel Godrich, who produces Radiohead, of course. And I talked to Nigel once about that record and mentioned Hunky Dory and I might be getting this wrong but he said yeah I was trying to go for the same kind of feel a very warm kind of twinkly golden feel of production that's what I get from it so I'll give you a couple of quick podcast recommendations one of them was my appearance on films to be buried with You don't have to listen to my appearance, but I was on it. And Films to be Buried With is about films, and it's hosted by the actor and comedian Brett Goldstein, perhaps best known for his role in Ted Lasso. And he's got this podcast in which he talks to various people about the films that they have loved most over the years in the wake of their imagined demise. And Joe Cornish has been on it. Lots of good people have been on it. Julian Barrett, he was on it. That was a good episode. Anyway, I had a good time and was honoured to chat to Brett about, well, a lot of the same films that I've talked about before, if you've read my book, Alien, things like that, I mentioned. But there's a few others that I don't think I've spoken about. You might get a couple of good recommendations if you're broadly sympathetic to the kind of things I enjoy. I got quite emotional. I, it doesn't take much to get me emotional these days. I am all over the place. I was thinking the other day, like, if I ever get myself cancelled somehow and have to defend myself and do a sort of apology or I don't know what, it's going to be absolutely horrific. <laughs> I'm going to completely come apart because I'm not really able to control my emotions when I when I do get emotional. It's an absolute disaster area. And um, I was telling Brett Goldstein about having watched the film Parenthood, the Ron Howard film, with my wife. My wife! I was on the sofa one evening, and Parenthood comes on, and it was about halfway through... And it was this scene with the young Joaquin Phoenix phoning up his dad, who was divorced from his mum. And 
I got so, I got really upset watching it. <laughs> my my wife was like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" Anyway, I was telling this story to Brett Goldstein, and then and then when I was telling the story, I got upset as well. Although they edited it, I listened back, and they edited it quite sympathetically. So the worst of my um, emotional skidding was excised. But uh, I recommend the podcast. And also, speaking of getting emotional. I would recommend listening to the episode of Desert Island Discs with Adrian Edmondson, if you haven't heard it. I think you can listen to a kind of extended version on BBC Sounds. And my friend Garth sent me the link. I'm not on social media, so perhaps everyone is well aware of this episode of Desert Island Discs and they've all been raving about it. Wouldn't be surprised. It was a really good one. It's always an enjoyable show. Lauren does a great job, Lauren Laverne, interviewing people on there. But uh, it was fantastic and very emotional. And I think Garth had sent me the link because he said, oh, he reminds me quite a lot of you and uh, some of your stories about boarding school and your dad. That's my Garth impression. And it's true, there are a few similarities. Adrian Edmondson, who, of course, played Vivian in The Young Ones and was Rick Mayles comedy partner for a long time and is a great actor and comedian comic actor rather i should say he said i don't know i don't think of myself as a comedian anyway he was sent to boarding school as a young man and uh he was his mind was really scrambled by it like i think i've got a few hang-ups that i can trace back to boarding school definitely but on the whole i didn't have too bad a time there i was lucky i made some good friends and and it was a nice place, but it doesn't sound like it was so nice for Adrian. He uh, talks movingly about the impact that that had on his life. And he talks about his relationship with his dad, which definitely rang a few bells. And and then he talks about his friendship with Rick Mail, And he gets very emotional. But in Desert Island Discs, they kept everything... <laughs> They kept all the, like, they didn't edit any of that out, as far as I can tell. I don't know, maybe they did, but all the kind of wobbly breathing when Adrian started to get emotional was kept in. But it's very moving indeed, and also the music choices were great. Downtown by Petula Clark. That's a song that I have never properly appreciated until I listened to it there. And I was listening on headphones when I was out at the shops, scanning my nuts in Tesco Metro, as I like to do. And downtown comes on, and suddenly I'm hearing it in headphones for the first time. What a song! Beautifully produced, romantic, emotional, tuneful, lovely Petula Clark's voice. My dad used to hate Petula Clark. Petula Clark. I don't know what his problem with Petula Clark was. Anyway, perhaps he put me off and I'd never really given Downtown the, its due. But what a what a lovely song. And then, what was the other one? Oh yeah, Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Um, I'm Bored. Never heard that before. That was amazing. Okay, I should get back. But... Uh... Thank you very much indeed, once again, to Sam Bain. Thanks to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support and conversation editing on this episode. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork. Thank you to all at Acast who uh, make it possible for me to continue doing the podcast. But most of all, thanks to you. I really appreciate you coming back and listening right to the end. And I would like to uh, proffer a hug if that's okay i am approaching for a hug i am extending my arms the hug is happening now hey good to see you until next time take it easy take a deep breath you'll be all right i love you bye